The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by Kingsters for Kingsters, Poly, Queer, Transfolk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. Featuring personalities as their authentic selves, this is What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. It's an intimate conversation with people inside the kink and fetish worlds, as well as educators, sex-positive personalities, and other amazing people sharing their stories of what makes them who they are. And now, here is our own wonderful human with the questions, John or as he is known around the kink and fetish community. Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie. It's hard to imagine a world without kink. For so long, it only lurked in the shadows, spoken by only those who knew about it. Until about 30 years ago, when someone decided that the world needed to understand our world, and she published a groundbreaking book that would change the path of BDSM forever. The author of numerous landmark sex books, including Different Loving and Different Loving Too, Come Hither, and The Truth About Sex, a sex primer for the 21st century, Dr. Gloria Brame is renowned for her pioneering work in removing the stigma from BDSM and fetish sex. She is a much sought after expert on BDSM and fetish sex, sex science, sexual wellness, sexual techniques, and relationship skills. Her pioneering sex research and original insights into human sexuality have made her one of the most frequently cited sex experts in the world. Dr. Brame holds an MA in English Literature from Columbia and a PhD in Human Sexuality with a specialty in BDSM fetish sex from the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. And she is also certified as a sexologist by the American College of Sexologists. The groundbreaking author, Dr. Gloria Brain, on what women and other wonderful humans want. questions that establish the story. Five questions about firsts, bringing back the genesis of the character behind the human. It's the first five, and it starts now. First time you ever heard the term BDSM, and what was your reaction to it? I was running an SM slash DNS board because it was 19 it was the 1980s 
And there was an awful lot of quarreling sometimes, and particularly on a different, uh, in a different place, alt.sex.bondage, which I wasn't really a participant there, but I occasionally went there because a lot of people who are in my book, Different Loving, that's how I got, got them um, on board through that board. So um, there was a lot of quarreling over, well, I do B and D, but I'll never do S and M, or I do D and S, but I'll never do B and D. And it's like, you know, making these distinctions, but clearly we were all pretty much doing the same things. So this is what I heard anyway. Uh, somebody on my board said, well, you know, over there, they're already calling it. And at the time it was B-D-D-S-S-M. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, I thought that was dumb. You know, it just seemed like, what? <laughs> you know, but a, a few years later, it was proposed within the community leadership, um, I think on a list that Susan writes at the, okay, at NCSF? Yes. Okay. Um, suggested that we move to BDSM, which was the short version, and we do so because we had no real clear message that we were sending. And if we wanted to do education and outreach and particularly to like law enforcement, who at the time were really busting a lot of clubs as was their habit for many years, you know, and they were doing that piece of doing a lot of uh, law enforcement outreach. So the idea was give them a term that's a little bit mysterious that isn't as intimidating, that isn't a turnoff like S&M is to a lot of people, you know, and that isn't specific to exactly, because we had another term at the time, what it is that we do, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So BDSM is what it is that we do. Okay. One. What is one of the first questions that you got on your CompuServe forum or through alt-sex bondage, which for those of you who don't know, was one of the original forums when it comes to the internet way before, before any of us knew what the internet was. What were some of the first questions you got? Questions that I got. I would say that uh, in my group, which was it's just its own thing on CompuServe, there was no internet at the time. Mm -hmm. There was no World Wide Web. It was just a few big companies like Prodigy and AOL and that ran the service, which had before that incarnation been bulletin boards set up by individuals. So anyway, um, I would say that the biggest question that came to me is, am I sick? Am I Ted Bundy if I want to tie up girls? Am I uh, a doormat if I enjoy being spanked? You know, it was all, am I normal? Am I sick? Everyone was very afraid back then 
that if they admitted what they were into, they'd be arrested or stuck in insane asylums or something. Because that's what the literature of the time said. What was your first exposure to S&M or BDSM? As opposed to the first time I tried it? Because when I was a kid, as a young teen, and I had no idea there was a name for it, that was my biggest thing, is I never knew, like, other people are as crazy as me. <laughs> That's what was, like, the joyous release, you know? It was like, oh, I'm not alone. There's an actual term. I'll just live with the term, you know, and redefine it, because I don't fit with the term, but there's a term. Oh, my God. So, I mean, but I did, uh, I had uh, fetishistic and sadomasochistic fantasies since I was a little kid. And so when I was a teenager, I was uh, jerking off to them, having mm -hmm. solo sex, shall we say. <laughs> so Enjoying a bout of solo sex. <laughs> <laughs> with, and my, with my dark fantasies. Yeah. And the first time you ever practiced it with someone? Um, when I was 17 and banging a college professor, I asked him if it would be okay if I called him master. And he dug it. So I did. There's so many taboo things in that one sentence. <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm not like other people, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. The first time you got the idea that this needs to be a broader subject shared to a broader audience. My own ex exploration first made me feel that I needed to help all the people that were really fucked up about being kinky. And that's why I started a support group. And then when I was doing the research like two or three years later, because I had done, I had done, I felt like I did five years work of, of work on myself in, in a year. And that was the year that I came out where I went from, I'm not really into this, nobody else is into this, to joining a board going, I'm so wet, I can't stand it. Oh my God, there's some, there are people emailing me who want to play with me. Holy shit. You know, gold mine. <laughs> and, you know, all my first experiences were really positive. The first time I went to an S, the first time I went to an SM club, not that great, but the second and third time I went was amazing. You know? But that wasn't until I was like 28 or 29. And I think I, I was a wild hippie, but I had a lot of hippie and feminist work to undo in order to permit myself to be a top. And that's a great place to call a break because we're going to be talking about that and so many more 
groundbreaking things with Dr. Gloria Brame when we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. We do this show without paid advertisers and provide it to you as a labor of love. If you want to help the show, as well as contribute to Catsuit's conference fund to get live interviews and teach some amazing classes, you can give at bit.ly slash thanks, Catsuit. Now let's hear from some of Catsuit's friends with some messages for you. Welcome to the Yoniverse. I'm Scarlett. And I'm Anya. The Flaming Yoni podcast is a celebration of the beautiful and unique expressions of female sexuality. From asexual to megasexual, from lifelong monogamy to relationship anarchy, from deep spiritual bonds of sacred union to spur the moment flames. It is all infused with Yoni energy. Search for the Flaming Yoni on your favorite podcast platform. You will not leave the same as when you came. The Heart of the Dominatrix. Portraits and Interviews of Exceptional Mistresses. This book is about female domination. This book is about dark corners, both physically and psychologically. This book is for you, whether you're a beginner or have decades of experience with BDSM. If you're eager to learn more about power exchange dynamics or are simply interested in relationships and the aesthetics of this world. This book will change your perspectives. Be warned. Visit heartofthedominatrix.com to order your copy today. Are you curious about kink but don't know where to begin? (laughs) Or maybe you have a friend who, while they appreciate your interest in BDSM, they don't really understand what it's all about. You should check out Kink for the Curious. It's a fun little activity book with color pages and word finds, lots of silly puns, (laughs) Uh, but lots of solid BDSM and kink information written by somebody who's been in the business for almost 30 years. Kink for the Curious, a BDSM activity book for beginners written by Princessa Natasha Strange, that's me, (laughs) is available on Amazon. Go get it now. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think, and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes Mistress, now available on Kindle, and you can order your copy at yesmistress.com. We invite you to connect with us on social media so you can follow all the great news about the show. You can find us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1, on Instagram at WhatWomenWantPodcast, 
and on FetLife at www.podcast. And if you want to follow the host, that's easy as on Twitter, Instagram, and FetLife, he is Hi There Catsuit. And now back to what women and other wonderful humans want, presented by Dating Kinky. And welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Nookie. As I try to take my fifth grade arithmetic and realize that 1993, when the book Different Loving by our guest, Dr. Gloria Brain, came out 30 years ago, that you started talking about BDSM in the mainstream. What was the reaction when the book came out? Our. <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, there was gratitude and wonderful welcomes from the community for having written the book. There was phenomenal curiosity, like when we went and talked, you know, we did like TV shows and radio shows all across the country, which was you know, wild, nobody knew what to do with us. Or, you know, I mean, one place we went to, they, they had cops in the background, mm. you know, in case those crazy sadomasochists went out of control. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it was just, oh, they were always really disappointed to realize we were like kind of nerdy people, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and uh, we were, censored from having reviews and all the important newspapers the times laughed at my publicist mm. cruelly you know um but it didn't matter because it was a book that was needed at mm -hmm. that time there was nothing else like it there was never a critical look at the nature of human sexuality in precisely that way. Because really the question that I was asking and the question that I came, you know, that I've ever since been on a mission to talk about, explore, continue to educate myself on is what is normal? Mm -hmm. You know, what is sexually normal for you know, homo sapiens, you know, in the, the, at its very most basic, what's normal, of course, is diversity, that some people are gay, and some people are not gay, and some people are bi, and some people are sometimes bi, or bi-possible, and some people are pansexual, and some people only want to sleep with people who have gorgeous bodies, and some people only want to sleep with people who have gorgeous minds, and some people don't want to sleep with anyone and all of it is normal. And what those two people or 12 people or how many ever you can fit into an orgy, people, whatever it is that they do is by nature normal because people are doing it. And they're certainly not the first people to think of doing those things. So if you look back, which I've done for some of my books beyond you know, what we have recorded as possible BDSM history, because that was something else that we did. I'll get right back to it. But 
you know, you can tell that ancient cultures looked at gender, sex, and the body completely differently from us. And they did for thousands of years. And they were an entire civilization of people just like us, but with a different perspective and a different state of reality in their brains because of where they were in time, but still the same animal, you know? So what is normal for people? You know, there is no norm. If people do it, it's normal. Or if enough people do it, it's normal. What we should distinguish, what we should say is, is it a good choice or a bad choice? Is it a life-affirming choice or is it a destructive choice? You know, is it a consenting choice or is it a criminal choice? Those are the things that matter. But of course, you know, everybody is tied to this notion that there is such a thing as normal, particularly since Dr. Freud, you know, and um, there's always work to do. I will always remember back in 1981, driving to an adult bookstore on Harry Hines Boulevard in Dallas, Texas, and walking into that bookstore and seeing a magazine on a shelf. Now, I didn't know what I would find inside that bookstore, but I saw a magazine on a shelf of a woman on a cross in a latex catsuit bound and gagged. And my reaction was total relief. Hmm. I wasn't alone. I can only imagine that my story is repeated hundreds of thousands of times. And when you talk about normal, the definition of normal in 1993 1983, that time, people didn't know what to call it so because they were so scared of it. People did not talk about blowjobs in 1993. That was considered really, you know, wild. People mm -hmm. who gave blowjobs and anal sex. I got censored from Cosmopolitan magazine for writing an article on anal sex. <laughs> You know, I mean, and that was in the 90s. So, yeah. What now, did you what... think you were back in the 90s? In the term normal, did you feel perfectly great in who you are or were you listening to the outside going, hmm, I wonder if there's a problem? That was my initial response. So at first I felt relieved and exhilarated that there were other people like me, but of course I couldn't, you know, I couldn't escape 20 something years as a good Jewish girl, feminist and all of that. Um, to suddenly just say, and I'm all right. You know, I thought my first thought was how fucked up was my childhood? Mm. And that took me down 
to down a very dark corridor that I kept exploring until I was in my fifties, you know. But uh, there, because I believe I would have been kinky anyway, because mm -hmm. I believe it's probably a genetic marker or something, or a couple of genetic markers, um, that we just need different levels of sensation, or we're tuned to different wavelengths, just the way we all kind of recognize each other, what we call kinktar. I think probably these are things that under the skin are like genetic markers going ee, ee, ee. <laughs> I don't know. That's a little far out. <laughs> but, but I, I understand I understand you know, a little I understand a little bit of what you mean because I grew up in the sixties when I could see Batman mm -hmm. and Catwoman and Batgirl obviously had their effects on me. And Emma Peel, who was in the British show, The Avengers, was always mm -hmm. getting tied up and actually probably was in the first BDSM scene ever on American television when she appeared as the Queen of Sin in <laughs> the Hellfire Club with a whip in her hand. Uh -huh. And I'm sure people back then were going, why is this making me feel the way it does? And I was a little kid at the time. That's right. And then as I reached puberty, those kind of things were turning me on and I didn't realize I was being turned on by them. Correct. And that's how I, that's when I saw the movie Spartacus, I was five. And I, when he was tied to the cross, I was over the moon. <laughs> I mean, everybody else is like, the suffering. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was five. I had no idea why. You know, no idea. But these are things we remember when we get older and we know ourselves and understand ourselves. And we're like, oh, yeah. So you realize there was a need <clears throat> for an academic view of what this was all about. Well, here's what the was thing. the genesis of that? Well, here was the thing, the challenge I, I wanted to mention was that I couldn't find any good science to support my theories hmm. because all of the science really, it was a new science that started in the 1880s, you know, the science of sex. And everybody unquestioningly accepted that sex was only for married people who made children. And that was it, that that was the purpose of sex. So anything that was different from that was a perversion. And there was really, at the time, everything was very Freudian. So I read through a lot of books and although there were some great morsels here and there, I was like, but what made them, you know? So what we did, my husband's, um, William uh, was an archaeologist and I was an English professor. So what we did is we looked to literature, I did, and to archaeology. 
because I was able to come up, you know, I just had to remember all the things that I'd remembered all those years, <laughs> the, the naughty bits out of, you know, classics I'd read, you know, and he was familiar with cultures where, oh, like in Native American culture, you know, where they did early forms of body, you know, primitivistic forms of body modification, flattening of skulls, trepanation, um, different cultures had different kinds of piercings and obviously ancient tattoo rituals. And so that was kind of the entryway to understanding that people like us really have always existed. You know, uh, pain cults have always existed. What was the first reference you can remember going back of S&M or BDSM in literature, how far back does it go? We know that for sure um, the Romans practiced it, or at least some of the Roman cults. We have uh, leftover uh, walls painted with images of whippings, but in an ecstatic setting, not whipping as a punishment, you know, and kind of and pansexual sex of all kinds, you know. So it's always been there. I'm sure it? that in one form or another, you know, there, in other words, what I'm suggesting is as long as there have been people, there have been people, some people who can take a lot more pain than others. There have probably always been people who eroticize it. There have probably always been people who eroticize tying up. Like, But you have to understand, it's, it's very hard to really put things, take things out of their historical context. For example, I tend to think of Houdini as a bondage fetishist who made it work for himself. <laughs> You know, just like there was a guy called Lepedemon who would get on stage and fart. Like one day he discovered that, yeah, that was his whole stage act. So he discovered in French, of course. <clears throat> you can you can Google him, but he discovered that he can he could suck water in his ass and then expel it with great noisy farts. And he built an entire career on it. But okay, but Houdini. Ultimately, I mean, clearly he was doing what most bondage enthusiasts have done, which is tying themselves up in bed to come, you know, tying up their feet or tying themselves up tight and then trying to escape. I'm, you know, like really hardcore bondage people, they want to know, you know, they want to make it so they really can't, but they have to be able to. So that, you know, when their mother kisses them in the morning that they're like, Yes, mom. <laughs> Your angel is here. <laughs> so I'm thinking, wow, Harry Houdini, man, you know? He lived his fetish in front of the world. And no one even thought he was a fetishist. Just He thought he was cool. Yes, an escape artist. You know, I mean, so how many... Other characters are there like that out there? 
gazillions. You know, as long as we've worn shoes, isn't it reasonable to expect that somebody who made shoes was a foot fetishist? Who else would have such a natural job? Mm -hmm. measuring little ladies' feet, you know, <laughs> <laughs> making them the softest slip as possible, you know, in the days when those things were actually, uh, you know, everything was custom-made and, you know, it wasn't like the capitalistic factory mentality where a job's a job and, you know, you know, there was a time when people got really into their crafts. So how do we know? It certainly seems to me that if we're the same people they were, just with different opportunities, and fetishes maybe for different things, you know, like Napoleonic hats were once quite the fetish. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And um, who can say we were the same people? So I think that this has always gone on. They just didn't have language for it. You talked about Roman days and exuberant whipping. <laughs> when was the first time that you saw any sort of inkling of female domination or the female as the superior in a relationship? How far back does that go? I never cared for very shrewish or aggressive women. So, you know, having been raised in, among Jewish women, there were quite a few of them. And I didn't care for that. You know, I didn't like henpecked husbands or any of that, mm -hmm. which maybe I associated with femdoms. But I think what was a big eye-opener for me was I really thought that most of BDSM was men doing it to women and all the women being submissive. Mm. You know, I thought it was submissive women and gay bottoms, you know, but I didn't even, and when I saw a, a dominatrix, she just, the way she was depicted was uh, very uncaring and sociopathic and that didn't appeal to me. Mm. So it was really the first time when I saw this is not a person, but I saw bondage porn where all of the bondage models were men. And I was about 28 or 29. And it was all, I guess it was a gay magazine, but my girlfriend had it because she was into it. And she was saying, oh, you're, you'd really be into this. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I just don't know. And she said, look at some of my porn. See what you think. And as soon as I saw that magazine, it, I knew it in the moment. It changed me. It was like, guys want to be tied up? <laughs> really? <laughs> and um, it was a beautiful thing. Because I didn't really, you know, it just was so exciting. And leather was so exciting. Mm -hmm. And um, when I first got into the scene, you didn't really see an awful lot of 
femdoms who weren't prodoms. Mm. And these days, having, you know, like lived the lifestyle for forever, you know, like since years before I wrote that book, you know, um, I'm so much more mellow, but it, because at the time, I really uh, learned a lot from prodoms and their style today, the old ones, not the new ones, but the old ones, their style really didn't suit a woman who wanted to like be in love with her slave and have, you know, get married or have a family or, you know, you know, just live together because, you know, their style of play was um, doing people, you know, rendering a service. Mm -hmm. And I think that even to this day creates a negative impression for women like me, you know, who want everything. They want a relationship and as BDSM, mm -hmm. you know, and this notion that, you know, a top can't do this or a dominant can't do that. You know, you got to get over that. Can you take me back? You said the first time you went into a S&M club, it wasn't so great. But take me back into those early clubs. What was it like to walk in there and give me a picture of what you would see there? Well, my favorite was what had been the Hellfire then became the Vault in the uh, late eighties and much of the nineties, I believe. And then became the hellfire, <laughs> but you know, um, that was my favorite club because there was always something happening there. Even on a slow night, there was always somebody tied to something or somebody in a cage or people off in their own fantasy worlds, you know, like a a pony player with a saddle on his back giving women rides, or a guy whose fetish was degradation and would just sort of crawl around on the floor all the time. You know, there were like regular visitors there, regular club attendees, who in a sense were kind of a show themselves and with whom you could interact in a very friendly way, you know, or kind of play with. And then it was just different people coming in with different ideas, different equipment, coming in for different reasons. You know, it wasn't today pretty much, you know, we tend to go to clubs with familiar people. For the most part, it's not. At that time, there was no consolidated community outside of, let's say, the classes Eulenspiegel gave in New York. So, and when you came to the club, there were, you know, there were tourists. There were people who just came there to jerk off. You know, like cab drivers, you know, had an extra half hour. They'd bop <laughs> into the club and watch some woman in leather, you know, whipping a guy. And they'd jerk off and leave, you know, <laughs> never see them again. <laughs> Every once in a while, you know, just somebody who totally didn't belong there would show up like somebody from the religious Jewish community, you know, like 
with everything black on? And you'd be like, you know, but a lot of beautiful people showed up. People, you know, glamorous women in incredible fetish wear. Um, it was a place where trans women could feel free and safe to be seen and could dress up in any kind of outfit they wanted. So they usually went with totally outrageous. And I don't mean in the drag sense, but I mean, you know, just like how much could they self-humiliate? <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was already post-AIDS by then, which meant that uh, no sex could take place at the club and no real penetration. You know, so that was pretty limited because I had understood that in the 70s, it was a free-for-all. But um, so it was really uniquely voyeurism and BDSM. And it was wild. I mean, it was just, I had moved not far away. I was walking distance, so I would go there every weekend. I'd sit at the non-alcoholic bar <laughs> and drink orange juice. And I would just watch and it was, uh, it was just incredible. You know, it was like, everyone was weird, but weird in a way that made you want to get to know them. You know, not weird like, I'll tiptoe around that person, more like, wow. What made that person combine high heels and a catheter bag and a, you know, bodysuit? <laughs> you know, and walk around the club like that all evening. Where, what was their trip? <laughs> or, you know, someone being tied up and suddenly acting like a cat, meowing and yowling and taking all of the, you know, sensation really like a cat, just in cat space, mm -hmm. you know? And anywhere else this would look really fucked up, but somehow in this place where everybody is just interested and absorbed in it or turned on by it, or having fun with it. Um, it was, it felt like this was the realest shit I'd ever seen in my life. And it sounds to me that it is the epitome of a safe space where people didn't have to worry about what other people thought. No. No. I mean, You know, I think one of the great and lovely lessons that I think we all learn in the scene is that exactly how you look or exactly what age you are doesn't matter as much as whether you can give somebody a genuine experience of ecstasy. 
And that doesn't have to be sex. It can be just beautiful energy. Yes. And that I see all all the time or when I was out at SM Spaces. After COVID, I feel like I'm the old lady from the sea. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a hundred years since I've been to this. But, um, But early on, especially when I went, every single weekend for years you know, to something. Um, it was a very powerful feeling because I remember thinking, actually at a finish bowl once, I remember looking around the room and going, so many freaks in here. And I thought, I could have a nervous breakdown and they wouldn't think less of me. They'd like come over and help me and say, are you okay? Can we help you? You know, it wouldn't be like like my, you know, for a control freak, my biggest, you know, nightmare that somehow I would have an anxiety attack and start flailing in the middle of a crowd or something. Um, I realized I could do that in this crowd. They wouldn't even remember me for it. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be shamed for it. I would be cared for. Because I had seen that one of my most vivid memories was maybe the second or third time I went to a club, but I got there early because they were hosting uh, a fundraiser for some people who got busted for BDSM. Mm. (laughs) And um, somebody had an epileptic fit and there were only like 12 of us there at that point. It was early in the day. And three people immediately rushed over to the woman and they knew exactly what to do and they got everybody else out of the way and they put her out of danger right away and they were so compassionate and i thought man if she had that on the street she'd be in trouble imagine your typical new yorker walking over (laughs) (laughs) but It impressed me so much. I felt it said volumes about the people who take this life seriously. I find kink groups, and when you go to conventions, oh my gosh, it's amplified Mm -hmm. dozens or hundreds of times where you feel like you belong. Yeah. Even if you're not sure why you should be there, you feel like you belong. Mm-hmm. And I know the feeling that I have when I go to kink conventions or conferences. And granted, I present at a lot of them. And so a lot of people know who I am, either through the presentations or the podcast. But I always feel as though I'm just a pal just a friend that they want to say hi to. And I want to say hi to others and and get to know them and get to know what makes them who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this whole podcast has been about is I know that there are visions of these powerful women and these educators and all that. And when you get right down beneath the surface, underneath the cat suit, into the heart, kink 
people for the most part are some of the most genuine, kindest people I know. Yes, very emotionally generous in my experience. Why do you think that is? Is it because we've been a part of something that nobody else understands? Or is it I've gone through what you've gone through? I, I think it's a lot of things, actually. I think it's that in order to be good at this, you've got to deal with truth. The truth about somebody else, the truth about what they want, the truth about yourself, the truth about whether you're being moral about it, whether, you know, the incredible amount of dialogues that we have about our terms to define morality, like what is safe, what is consensual, what is informed consent, what's risk-aware consent, you know, what, these are very deep topics really philosophically and we have struggled with consensus since we were a community and the fact that we still have ongoing dialogues and now teach voluminously about this and that we've produced so many extraordinary teachers in the younger generation um is really a testament to i think our belief that you can experience life at a harder level if you're willing to put in the work. The emotional work, the work of giving up your inhibitions and letting yourself go into an experience full of potential unpredictable outcomes. I think that part of the beauty of what we have is that the fantasy always brings about the reality. Meaning you may have the fantasy of being bound to a cross and hit with heavy impact toys to the point where you can't escape and you're having to have those impacts imposed on you. But the more it happens, the more you realize that this is giving you a new sense of reality that you may not have thought about where you're in touch with every second and every fiber that hits you and every moment that you're there. I call it the ultimate mindfulness exercise, because when you are in an amazing kink scene, your mind can't go anywhere else. Correct. It's such a high for me. You know, people say, what do you get out of it as a top? Because I'm not a top that wants to have sex at the end. You know, I'm just like, ah, <laughs> boy, I get, I get to go somewhere else where I'm really all powerful, where, where men and women will do anything to please me, you know, it's a high. In the first five, my last question to a lot of the pro-doms especially is, can you tell me about the first time, but I'll just ask you the question in this, 
about a time that someone looked you in the eye or had written you a note after you had played with them and they said, you have changed my life for the better. <laughs> um, I definitely had a guy like that in my life, but he was a client because I pro dumb for a couple of years myself early on. And, you know, he felt that every time he saw me, it was transformational for him. And it was like a cure to his depression. Whenever he started to feel depressed again, I'd hear from him. And it took him away from everything, you know? The time that he spent with me was just better than a vacation for him. Because, you know, you take a vacation, you go away, whatever. Two weeks, they slide by. What did you really, you know. But in three hours with me, he just exited his reality completely. And then was safely brought back. So... That was very interesting. Most people just, you know, worship me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, goddess. You were the best. You know, that's what But um... (laughs) Well, I will spend this next break bowing down to the good doctor. And when we come back on what women and other wonderful humans want. Different persona. Different (laughs) persona. We will have more with Dr. Gloria Brain when we return. What women and other wonderful humans want presented by Dating Kinky. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Dan. Recently, we put together a brand new book called Hearts and Collars, reflecting 20 years in a power exchange relationship. It's 350 pages of what we've been living for the past 20 years. Indeed, and it's got chapters like communication, power exchange and spirituality, how to be a leader, high protocol, becoming a follower, rituals, the new porch time, victim, survivor, and thriver, power exchange and polyamory, submissive versus wife, the practical contract guide, relationship shorthand, as well as other tools and experiences we've had over the years. Check it out at eroticawakening.com slash hearts and collars. Bye, Dan. Bye, Dawn. Have you ever dreamed of a house that is kink-friendly in every room? Have you ever wanted a getaway where your every desire is contained within steps? In Cincinnati, Ohio, the Wanton Sinners B&B is now open. Two kink-equipped bedrooms, a fully-equipped basement dungeon, and a living room with cages and restraint points throughout and you can leave your toy bag at home because every space comes with plenty of toys and restraints. Visit Wanton Sinners on FET and follow the links to the Airbnb and Verbo listings. The Wanton Sinners B&B in Cincinnati, where your dreams have a home. 
Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. Hi there, I'm Nookie. My pronouns are she, hers, and I'm the founder of Dating Kinky, a different kind of dating and educational site for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. Catch me in my own podcast, Dating Kinky. And now back to John and their guest on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you, Nookie, and welcome back to the show. I am joined by Dr. Gloria Brain, the author of the groundbreaking book, Different Loving, and many other books. And some of your books have been recognized as of late with some pretty neat awards. Thank you. Yeah, um, I got the Pauline Rayage Award for Fiction last year from the National Leather Association for my book, Amazon Hammer. It's a, a wonderful exploration of the world of S&M through the eyes of a young kinky woman, woman who becomes a pro-dom and lives the life for good and bad, mostly good. And uh, you follow a 20-year journey in her life from when she's 18 and no, she's kinky, but doesn't know what to do with it, to getting quickly recruited to work as a pro-dom, you know, with an invented backstory. But she's hardworking and she loves it. She loves kink and she becomes really committed to it. And you see her radicalize her life with the support of her gay grandpa, a major, major figure in her life. So Amazon Hammer. You could even buy it at Amazon. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and in addition to your great work in writing books, and you have so many of them going back, your day-to-day -day life is that of bringing help to people who need it, especially if they have questions about kink. Yes, I... As a result of different loving and this whole, what is normal sex anyway? <laughs> I went back to school and I got a PhD. That's where the doctor comes from. And uh, I got a degree in sexuality. So, um, and then I got certified as a sexologist and I opened a practice, which was really kind of, at first the continuation of the peer counseling I'd been doing when I was running uh, my support group on CompuServe. And then what do you know? It turned out I was okay at it. I was pretty good at it. And people who worked with me were seeing positive results. And I just uh, started to love doing it because the reward was amazing. You know, when you're a writer, you have to hope somebody, A, buys your book, second, reads your book, 
And third says something about it. You know, again, it wasn't like Amazon is today where, you know, Amazon didn't exist in 93 when the book first came out. <laughs> so I don't think, you know, so it, it really wasn't quite uh, as it is now where books really get a lot of word of mouth. So we were just hoping and maybe I'd get a, a letter, you know, in land mail <laughs> <laughs> from somebody who read it and sent it to the publisher. And then the publisher sent it to me three months later, you know, but in therapy, it was like week to week and month to month. I could see a person go from a place of guilt and shame about jerking off, you know, just to the bigger and harder nuts to crack, which is shame about a fetish that they have, um, anxiety that they'll never find somebody who'll love them if the person knows they're kinky and many, many different problems that do occur, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly to people who are not in the community. I mean, I still think that the community is just the tip of the iceberg of the number of people who are kinky. You know. Two, two questions as we wrap things mm -hmm. up. Different Loving was published by Random House, mm -hmm. which would be the equivalent of putting a TV show on ABC, NBC, or CBS. We're talking a major publisher. What attracted them to such, at the time, a controversial book? The book was turned down by every one of the 21 publishing houses I'd sent my proposal to on the advice of a literary agent I knew. But at the 21st place, the one we hadn't heard back from, something about the manuscript made the person decide to pass it along to another person at Random House rather than just put it in the rejection pile. And that person at Random House thought it was the book to publish, that the world needed this book that the subject was horribly misunderstood. And that's the person who bought and published the book. And boy, did he have balls. But he called it right. The book is still in print. It's sold over a million copies. It's done really well. I still get royalties, you know. <laughs> so it was a book. It was just, I think... At the right moment, and because it was written so academically and had so many case studies in it and so many sites from history, and you know what I mean? It was hard to dispute the book. People who disputed it disputed that I would ever endeavor to make the shit look okay. But I felt that I had made a good case based on all my research. I didn't twist it. I just dug it up. It was there, you know, just like today we're digging up all of this 
really cool shit that was suppressed for a hundred or two hundred years. You know, like what? You know. Uh, yes, people always use dildos. <laughs> <laughs> Stone Age dildos. <laughs> if you could go back to when you wrote the book mm -hmm. and chart the progress of the acceptance of what we do, Oh, God, it's just astronomical. No, it's not even the same world. It's just not even, it's, I have seen, you know, it went from a very, from, you know, when I started out, I literally thought there were like maybe a hundred people in the world who did this stuff. But then I saw, well, they're magazines, maybe it's a few thousand. But I figured spread out all over the place. And then when I ran the board, our membership was just crazy because this was before there was an internet. But we just got so many people, you know, lurking on the boards, reading everything we wrote. And so it was a need because it is human nature to have sadomasochistic impulses, <laughs> you know, and how attenuated they are or whether they have gone in an erotic direction is a whole other story. Cause you know, we always use the same thing. So isn't the guy who climbs a mountain a masochist? You know, I'm a masochist. I wouldn't fucking climb a mountain, <laughs> you know, or isn't the person who, you know, uh, has to run the train, uh, you know, a, a dominant control freak. <laughs> yes, but there's a percentage of us that express that erotically without harm to others. Can you believe the progress that has been made since the book was written to where yes. we are now? Yes, and we're still not all the way there yet. You know, I mean... I also take a very dark historical perspective to some degree because all progress can be undone. So for example, when certain people were in power in the White House, I thought that there was the potential for all our progress to be undone. You know, um, you've seen how, you know, out of the blue sex workers are targeted by new legislation that was, stupid, horrible, cruel legislation for no reason. They just, why? Because they thought they'd get votes out of it or something. They, they, they knew they weren't fixing anything. They were only persecuting sex workers. So, I mean, you know, things can pop at whoever expected Roe versus Wade to be overturned, you know? So political history has a lot to say on how these things progress. Fortunately, we have so many people doing all of these things that we are a force unto ourselves. And by that, I mean, you have to combine BDSL, BDSM with LGBTQ and other, you know, and furries and other sexual minorities and see us as this really uh, 
huge mass of people, and particularly people under 40, you know. The new normal is definitely a new normal. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, you know, it's like my expectation when I started my, my group and I foolishly thought maybe, you know, there were a hundred of us do even doing this stuff. <laughs> what the internet has shown us is that this is actually very hot to an awful, to millions of people, millions of people, including ones who are too ashamed to do anything about it including ones who haven't figured out who they are yet or what kind of moral resolve they have. And by moral resolve, I mean that you can feel confident within yourself that you're making good choices, not that you're just following blindly in somebody else's footsteps or obeying rules you never consented to in the first place. I love the idea that more and more people do understand consent. And I credit our community with kind of having taught that to the world, the value and the mortal value of consent in relationships. Just like, you know, I think it's incredibly cool that, you know, safe word, which was just, you know, coined in the 80s and was once upon a time something that only, you know, you had to be kinky to know the word is now part of the common language. You know, now kids give their parents safe words and make safe calls, you know, and all of that <laughs> stuff. And I think as we've grown, we've actually had a very socially positive role by offering so much education. But, but my fear will always be that I'm the child of Holocaust survivor. So the Nazis will walk in and tear it all up. You know? mm. As they did when they, you know, as they destroyed the gay community in Berlin, you know. I mean, anything is possible, but Certainly, I am very heartened and very, may I live long enough to see like the younger generation and how they handle issues like this, how they, now that they've all watched it and routinely watch it to masturbate, maybe they're not going to feel the same way about it as their parents and grandparents who didn't even know that whole world of porn existed until they got online. You know, the internet is the great reveal of all of humanity's strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> I must imagine the pride that you have when you see each and every positive step made in this community, mm, knowing I, that... I, I was one of... A lot of people, you know, I mean, I'm proud that I had the balls to write that book because mm. it, it, I know it took balls to write that book. And I knew it at the time. It really scared the shit out of me at the time. 
But fortunately, I was, not, you know, I thought I'd be arrested for publishing it. But, um, and I was sure that I'd lose a lot of friends, and I did. <laughs> and maybe some relatives, and I did. And maybe some jobs, and I did, you know. But I did something that was original. And that I feel that all of my work, you know, that my, my work is aimed at helping people. And I hear from people and they've been helped. And that's the greatest thing of all. But no, no one person or organization can take credit for the way everything has turned out because it was a million different or thousands of different people working towards the same goal, which is dignity for all. I can't think of a better way to end this episode of the program. Dr. Gloria Brain, what an amazing life you've lived. What an amazing journey you've taken us on today. And thank you so very, very much for honoring us with your, your time and presence. Thank you, John. This was a delight. I really appreciate it. The credit we owe Dr. Brame is one of genuine appreciation. We can only imagine how much longer those shadows might have been if it were not for her courage. Her work to break the stigma continues to this day, but honestly, may never have had the chance to start until she decided to speak up. Here's what's coming up on the next edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. She is a doll handler, feminist, latex aficionado, kink educator, sadist, and Boston-based domina. Meet Vivian Darkbloom, who at 45 is just entering her prime as the queen of Beantown. Vivian Darkbloom next time on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. A new edition of the show premieres next Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Dr. Gloria Brain for being with us, and thank you to you, our listeners. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Join us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1, on Instagram at WhatWomenWantPodcast, for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. And now, select shows are available in video format at youtube.com slash datingkinky. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. 